hey, go figure. It's an episode of Metric User Experience Podcast. Last one for the month of April. Holy mackerel, that went by fast. In the month of May, we've got interviews with Camille Thomas, Alex Humphreys, Jessica Cup, and more. But you're going to have to deal with uh, just a one-on-one for this last one in April. I know, Schofield, you're dropping the ball. But uh, you know what? Like last week's episode, the um, what we ended up calling over coffee a self-descriptive uh series of q a questions it went over pretty well and so i got some more and we're going to do that one more time i think i got two or three more questions that'll take us you know the better part of like 20 to 30 minutes and then we'll close out this month speaking of every month i do a design swag raffle a uh raffle if you will where folks like you who are able to support libux on patreon at just the two dollar a month level get entered into uh a design swag raffle <laughs> so it's a fun perk and it's something i like to do so this month we're giving away a copy of ux libs edited by Matt Borg and recent guest of the pod, Andy Priestner. Here's the blurb on the back. Uh, edited by the team behind the International UX and Libraries Conference, user experience in libraries will ignite your new will ignite new interest in a rapidly emerging and game-changing area of research. It's sort of anthology style, so each chapter is written by a different person or set of persons. We've got um, it opens with uncovering complexity and detail, the UX proposition, using ethnographic methods to study library use, embracing an ethnographic agenda. Context, Collaboration, and Complexity by uh, Donna Lanklow. I really uh, think we're going to get her on the podcast, too, because she's brilliant. Uh, Holistic UX, harness your library's data fetish to solve the right problems. (laughs) Applying human-centered design to the library experience. The why, what, and how of using ethnography for designing user experiences in libraries. Identifying the barriers, tasks, and the social context of library UX. And there's like almost like a dozen other chapters after that. So there are a lot of UX books out there. And... There is a lot of scattered UX research out there that if you have um, the time and the inclination to find your way through paywalls or, you know, through your universities, um, go for it. But this is a weighty tome of expertise, and I'm going to give it away. So, hey, like I said, if you are in the position to uh, support this and other podcasts, um, our guest writers, our guest speakers, and stuff like that. It's, if this is the kind of content you like, check them out at patreon.com slash libux, L-I-B-U-X. Thanks. Noah asks, in an agile team, should a user story contain links or screenshots of the UI elements? And if not, where do you put the design? Let's backtrack a little bit for those who might not know. User stories, uh, popularized in an agile methodology, are phrases that are used to disassemble an application or a service into its most modular pieces, specifically its most modular tasks. So um, if you and a team were embarking on uh, creating something new, uh, you might think of having something like a to-do list that has bullets such as build such and such view in React or 
something like that. Design and develop this component, etc. Instead, um, on a Kanban board, which is kind of a to-do list on steroids, you might instead rephrase these tasks as user stories. As I said, this is a phrase that is sort of Mad Lib style, and it goes as a blank. I want to blank so that blank. An example might be, as a podcaster, I want to be able to label individual tracks so that I can quickly spin up show notes uh, when I publish it. That might not really be the best example, but the idea is that instead of creating a list of to-do items, you are creating a list of scenarios. These scenarios are meant to be addressed by the team as the narrative. The point is that it is a user story. You're meant to keep the user in mind as you go about fulfilling fulfilling the tasks that are implied. The other thing about the user story is that it is necessarily, um, oh, I don't know, interdisciplinary, cross-departmental, cross-team. There are going to be aspects related to, say, the user flow and the design mixed in with development and content creation. You know, all these different things kind of commingled for user stories and agile to work. Teams must work together. So your question as to should design be included in a user story, if you mean in, say, the tool that you are using to scrum, like maybe Trello or something in Asana, then uh, yeah, sure, why not? In the comments or in the, the back end of the user story, you can attach all sorts of different files and workflows or whatever as you go about completing that task. But the user story shouldn't be like, you know, as a podcaster, I want to see a particular user interface element for such reasons. And I don't know, maybe that can work. But, you know, a lot of this, I think, conflates with the problem of user stories in general. Um, go back and listen to the episode of Metric about personas and jobs to be done. And frankly, I agree with folks like Alan Clement who think user stories suck. Um, there's too much left out for interpretation. There's too much assumption to be made about the user story. Uh, quick tangent, I suggest that we replace them with job stories. So if the user story is, as a user, I want to do something so that blah, blah, blah. I suggest instead that we rephrase these as similar phrases that go a little bit like, when situation, I want to do something so I can have this expected outcome. The slight difference in phrasing here has, I think, a significant impact on your takeaway as a designer or developer or blank implementer in that there is more about the situation and the motivation here that has practical takeaway. The popular argument against the user story is that the part that encapsulates the persona, so as a podcaster, etc., if you remove it, does it really impact the takeaways from the user story in general? The answer is generally not. Um, as an alternative, the job story has a little bit more bite. So when I am in the middle of editing an episode, I want to label each track so that I can quickly spin up show notes with timestamps when I publish. When a narrative like this appears on the Scrum, you have more context. You know what the user is doing, you know what the user wants to do, so, and you know why the user 
wants to complete that item. In this case, you have more of an end-to-end picture of the feature that you are developing. And yeah, some of it includes design and some of it includes development. And it all includes a user flow from A to B or A to B to C to D or however modular you break this down and maybe precisely because it is less ambiguous than the user story we don't run into questions like this david j asks what role does photoshop play in ux asterisk confused asterisk ux the user experience is a metric it is a measurement, quantifiable-ish, of your end user's experience with your services or application or product. And as a metric, thus the name of the podcast, by the way, then tools like Photoshop or Sketch or whatever are just the tools you use to influence that measurement. This and similar questions all stem from this fuzzy definition of user experience that I kind of ranted against last week and I've had whole episodes on in the past. Basically, our lack of concise definition, which I just provided for you 30 seconds ago, negatively impacts our progress as a discipline. These shouldn't be questions that we get at this stage. In a world where the user experience is a metric, then A user experience designer is one who uses, oh gosh, our user's behavioral knowledge, uh, methodologies, ethnography, and various tricks of the trade to nudge that measurement, whether the UX is holistically good or bad, was it 1.0 or negative 1.0, however you want to visualize this, to nudge that into the black. Sometimes that means the design is bomb and it's awesome, potentially at the expense of its accessibility, but where the user experience is a holistic value, sometimes all ships rise with the tide, so a lot of investment in one area can negate the negative consequences in others. And in these cases, then, of course, you know, the tools that we use have a role. But if you replaced those tools, if you hired new people, or you switched up your methods, or you jumped a different bandwagon, or you changed computers, you went from Mac to Windows, and you lost your ability to use Sketch, then um, that only negatively impacts the user experience if the output is of less quality. Joshua asks, I was wondering if you could comment on what you think the most useful technical capabilities of a UX designer might be, if any. I think the biggest, I don't know if it's technical, maybe it, maybe you would call it a soft skill? I don't know. But I think the biggest skill that a good user experience designer can have is the ability to connect the dots between a feature of a service and its impact on a holistic user experience that is a metric. <laughs> um, whether or not this is your, your like, your sick ability to Kano survey everybody and literally tie, you know, a button press to customer satisfaction, or if you're quantifying good UX in some other way. I think your, value to the organization to the product or the service is has most impact 
with regard to your <laughs> ability to identify that, hey, this thing is a big waste of time, and this is where we need to really ramp up our efforts in terms of like development and like in terms of practical resource allocations whether we're talking about human resources or technical debt or just salary then your ability to say like yo this proactive chat requires a lot a lot of effort thus money to make right and if it's anything other than perfect it negatively impacts our ux then let's not do it you're you're saving the organization money this all with a caveat that you need the autonomy and the authority and the respect in the organization to voice your opinion about these things that is what user experience designers do so in a real world you are probably a designer or developer in maybe the traditional sense right you're designing graphics or user flows or you're putting pieces of a puzzle together in such a way you're writing code or shoot you're doing the research that informs policies whatever you know like this is kind of a big umbrella but i'm gonna assume that this is coming from a position of being in some kind of web service i mean what's not these days but um and address that for a second i also assume that this is where most of the metric listeners are at as well so what are the most useful technical capabilities that a user experience designer might have um i think a prerequisite in web services that is that you need to be code literate this doesn't mean that you need to be a developer someone shouldn't expect you to be able to roll out a standalone application however small but you need to be able to speak the language that the developers or engineers are speaking so as to be aware of the gulf between the ideal and the possible. Ten years ago, it was a given that everybody who goes into a professional position should have some sort of familiarity with, you know, the Microsoft Office suite. Can you use Word? Can you type? Maybe I'm talking about like 20 years ago. Um, but you get the idea. I think now it is reasonable to expect that everybody who goes into any kind of web service position in any kind of like a designer role, whether that's visual or not, needs to know their HTML, CSS, and maybe a little bit of JavaScript, at least to know what role they play in the design and the development of the web. If you're in a different industry where we're not talking about web apps, but we're talking about um, software or something like that, then you need to know a little bit about that. You just need to know how things work at a higher level. We're not all biologists, but we understand that our body is composed of microorganisms, themselves composed of cells. That's where you need to be. And lastly, totally on the surface, uh, shoot, man, I mean, if you can... If you know your way around a collaborative tool like Envision or Figma um, or something like that, you're going a long way. But now we're getting into stereotypes of UX stuff here. Ashley asks, your thoughts on user experience departments? I know they're controversial. <laughs> I sometimes go on tweet storms. Um, so here's the thing. I don't know what it's like in all of your industries, but... The one that I'm coming from, Libraries on Higher Ed, there has been a real boom really in the last three to five years in dedicated user experience departments, which I think is generally a good thing in general. <laughs> like, I guess that's redundant. But um, 
I think it's important to recognize and applaud organizations, uh, especially slightly bureaucratic ones that are slow to roll, when they allocate financial resources to the user experience. It is a good sign. But I've mentioned in the past this uh, capability maturity model made by Coral Sheldon Hess. It's one of my favorite visualizations of um, the maturity of user experience in an organization. It just has five levels, and let's say at the bottom, level one or level zero, it describes an organization to which there is... uh, no amount of user-centric thinking. Decisions, however small or large, or are made somewhat arbitrarily by stakeholders, gut feelings, and things like that. And at the highest, level 5, you have an organization throughout which user-centricity is the ethic. Decisions are informed by user input and data at all levels. In my interpretation, a user experience department is a level three or level four things are looking pretty good for that organization my gut feeling is positive however in practice these departments seem unempowered they are composed of content strategists and user experience researchers um and uh, data wonks like i think all of us here uh except that no one there is really imbued with decision making powers or real decision-making influence at the highest table. Or maybe specifically to web services, these are user experience teams that are separate from the application and web developers who, as part of, say, an IT department, are uh, following different orders, move at a different pace. So the stories that I've had a privilege of hearing have been about how, oh, uh, they have made this um, decision with regard to a research interface or a web service. Again, like I said, I'm in higher ed. And we are able to perform usability tests and report our data. But hey, the decisions have been made. And now these IT departments are working on something else. This has really soured my opinion of the user experience department in practice because to me it just feels like these departments exist for show and you know what that actually might not be a bad strategy with regard to the bottom line of uh universities we know through aggregation theory that um good user experience quantified is good for business and it never hurts the identity of a brand to say that they are user-centric. In fact, here are departments dedicated to the user-centricity, regardless of whether or not they actually do anything with that data. I also worry that the existence of a user experience department stymies the organization's climb up Coral's ladder here. They're stuck at a number three or a number four because by making the user experience, the problem of a department, the problem of a hierarchical silo, it implies that it's not the problem of everybody else. When the user experience is a metric by which we judge the success of a mission or business plan, then the user experience, like profit, like usage of the service, becomes the problem of every employee. The UX is end-to-end, meaning it begins, say, in the parking lot, and the student hired at the front desk impacts it positively or negatively. And I just feel that if 
the director of that department isn't in the C-suite, their ability to meaningfully impact this user experience is just stymied. But hey, don't let me be the hater. Anyway, that's it. I will see you next week with Camille Thomas. See you then.